0: Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. To find more of this and other great shows, head to cageclub.me. You can find the show on YouTube by searching Hard to Believe Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Or you can support the show on Patreon by heading to patreon.com slash hardtobelieve. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at john at cageclub.me. Or you can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. Anybody who listens to this show or knows me in real life already knows that I stand outside the boundaries of so-called mainstream when it comes to the Shakespeare authorship question. I'm a dedicated Oxfordian, sure, but I still think there are many, many more as-yet-undiscovered pieces to the puzzle when it comes to giving us the full picture of just how we came to the body of work we credit to the name Shakespeare. Over the last decade, an unlikely voice from outside the ivory tower of academia, Dennis McCarthy, has been hard at work demonstrating that one of the most widely known and widely accepted sources for the Shakespeare canon, Sir Thomas North, is in fact a far, far bigger piece of that puzzle than anyone has yet to come to appreciate. McCarthy's authorship crusade is chronicled in the brilliant new book published this spring, North by Shakespeare, by author and journalist Michael Blanding. Blanding's work has appeared in The New York Times, Wired, Slate, The Nation, The Boston Globe Magazine, and others. His last book, The Map Thief, the gripping story of an esteemed rare map dealer who made millions stealing priceless maps, was published by Gotham Books in June of 2014 and named a New York Times bestseller, an NPR book of the year, a New England indie bestseller, a mass book must read, and winner of an NES book award by the New England Society of New York. His first book, The Coke Machine, The Dirty Truth Behind the World's Favorite Soft Drink, was published by Avery Penguin in 2010. Michael was formerly a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University, a senior writing fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and a fellow at the Edmund J. Soffer Center for Ethics at Harvard Law School. In addition, he's been a senior writer at Harvard Business School, a senior writer and associate editor at Boston Magazine, and editor of New England Travel Magazine. He's also co-written several travel guides to New England destinations for Moon Handbooks, and taught journalism and creative nonfiction at Tufts University, Emerson College, Northeastern University, and Grub Street Writers. Michael Blanding is my guest today. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Blanding, uh, welcome to the show. It's great to um, finally talk to you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. Well, Before we talk
0: about your uh, most recent book, um, I, w- I would like to talk a little bit about your um, your other two books and sure. um, your, your, your careers as a writer and, and journalist and, and so yeah. forth. Um, it strikes me that in, in addition to North by Shakespeare, your other two books, uh, "The Coke Machine," which is a great title, by the way, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> um, and and the Map Thief. Uh, there, there's a there's a, th- a through line there, I think, in um, in the the nature of those those books and those topics, and that you mm-hmm. seem to find um, a kind of a big sort of cultural staple, um, whether yeah. it be Coca Cola or Shakespeare or maps, right? Uh, and uncover these very sort of interesting stories that reveal. Um, a lot of sort of hidden history and hidden information um, in 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 the world, and and that you like to tell those stories.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I I really like uh, narrative writing. I really like telling a story, and uh, the stories I particularly like telling are ones that kind of weave together a modern day story with a with a more historical story. And I feel like you get a lot more than the sum of the parts when you're kind of weaving two stories together and kind of seeing how they interact.
0: So where did that where did that drive to tell those stories? come from um how like is this always been a lifelong fascination with sort of picking apart um you know sort of everyday uh staples and objects like a coca-cola bottle or a map (laughs) um or is it or is it sort of something you developed as a as a as an adult
1: yeah that's a good question um I think I've always been a storyteller. I mean, when we were, you know, even in kindergarten, kind of sitting in the circle on the rug, and when it came to story time, I I was sort of notorious for for not being able to shut up once I got started. So I've always liked telling stories, but, um, you know, when I was in college, I never considered journalism. I was always wanting to uh, write fiction. I always thought I was going to be a novelist someday and it wasn't until after graduation I started traveling and and in particular I was teaching school in in India and uh, just sort of confronted you know for the first time with real abject poverty and environmental uh, issues Uh, you know it's just so in your face and it was really kind of that experience that really made me feel like I wanted to uh, to write about it and and to um, you know write something that might kind of uh, compel somebody to to do something about it. And so that's when I sort of shifted gears and, and became a journalist. I I moved back to uh, the States and I lived in San Francisco and I started writing for an alternative weekly out there. And as soon as I started writing true stories, I just never looked back. It was just so much more fascinating and interesting to me than, than uh, writing up, you know, kind of stories from my imagination, just getting an excuse to exercise my curiosity and talk to the people around me and write about issues that were were real and and in people's face and and uh and that was sort of how i started on this path
0: the uh decision to write a book about coke was that directly tied to um your experience of uh in india of poverty um and of this sort of mega American corporation encroaching on, uh, every corner of the world.
1: Yeah, it, it was in a sense. It, it didn't happen until, uh, quite a few years after that, but it was always issues that I was interested in, in writing about was, uh, labor issues and environmental issues and, uh, kind of telling stories about, uh, communities that that maybe didn't have a platform in, in order to tell uh, their own stories. And, I I saw Coke as sort of a, a way to get at a lot of those issues. Here's this company that is just so iconic for all of the good things in the world, you know, mom and baseball and apple pie and teaching the world to sing and all that, and yet when you kind of peel, peel off the label, uh, they are involved in all kinds of malfeasance in terms of uh, you know, water depletion in, in India and, and labor issues, uh, collusion with paramilitaries in Colombia, and then, of course, you know, the childhood obesity issue at home. And so it became a way to kind of tell tell this story and look at corporate capitalism and ask this question about how a company that, you know, presents itself as doing good in the world could be uh, creating so much misery behind the scenes. And, and what was, uh, you know, what was behind that? And, I didn't sort of want to tell it in a very um, black and white way. I wanted to really get at all the complexities of that and how, you know, uh, people are able to kind of justify doing these things and maybe uh, ways that they were were not uh, allowing themselves to really see the true impact of of their corporation. And and so that became the theme of that book.
0: Hmm. Well, you've now... uh taken a dive into a a world that i know well which is the world of um shakespeare authorship (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which is full of landlines yeah uh and and uh yeah another icon i mean one of the one of you know the icons um which which explains a lot of why there's so much resistance to um the sorts of things that dennis mccarthy uh is is on about Mm -hmm. Um, but let's let's talk about the history first of all the genesis of um this book uh who who dennis mccarthy is and how you came to um to find him and, and end up writing a story about him
1: yeah it's interesting in a way i mean uh you know segueing to this from from the coke machine it doesn't seem like there should be sort of an obvious kind of connection between this mega corporation and you know this literary analysis and these kind of literary mysteries but in a way it's a, uh, it's a, it's a similar kind of impulse, I think, to take this, you know, very iconic figure of Shakespeare and kind of peel, peel off the label and look behind the, the curtain, so to speak, to use a, mm-hmm. a theatrical metaphor <laughs> and, um, you know, examine a little bit about how, uh, how these plays that have just become so iconic and so beloved for 400 years, um, may not be exactly what we think they are. And, um, I had actually never really thought very much about this question uh, before uh, Dennis McCarthy approached me. And I'd always been a big Shakespeare lover. I love the plays and the stories behind the plays, but I'd never really put much stock in these kind of theories that, you know, Shakespeare didn't write them or somebody else wrote them. And uh, I was actually giving a talk for my book, The Map Thief, and uh, Dennis approached me afterwards and we got to talking. And uh, we were talking about maps and geography, which is another issue that he had been uh, involved in researching. Right. And we ended up going out for drinks and, and uh, you know, after about uh, two martinis at this uh, student dive bar at uh, Lafayette <laughs> College, where we happened to be, he sort of leans across the table and says, I've got this story for you about how Shakespeare wrote his plays that's really going to rock your world. And uh, that was kind of the genesis of, of everything. And, and uh, that's where everything started.
0: So McCarthy's uh, conclusion is or or his sort of working theory um, mm-hmm. that he has been that he continues to uh, explore and, and and delve into yeah. is uh, that uh, Thomas North who who most people probably don't know who that mm-hmm. is, um, but anybody within sort of the uh, academic uh, Shakespeare realm, be they, uh, traditional Stratfordians or otherwise, um, recognize the name as one of the, um, known references that the author used. Um, who, who, who is he? Um, what's his relationship to, uh, the, the Elizabethan Shakespearean world? Um, what's his, what's his place of importance in that, in that context?
1: Yeah. So Sir Thomas North is best known as the translator of this book called Plutarch's Lives. And uh, many uh, Shakespearean scholars and and even lay people know this work as the source for Shakespeare's Roman plays. So Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, Coriolanus, these works uh, take the stories in North's Plutarch's Lives and uh, sort of dramatize them. And do it in a way that no other Shakespeare play really does with a source, where they're sort of taking specific scenes and specific uh, language and uh, lines and kind of reworking the prose into this uh, theatrical uh, poetry. And uh, so, so that's not controversial. Everyone knows that Shakespeare used right. Thomas North as a source right. for the, the Roman plays. What uh, Dennis has uh, discovered, or uh, what he claims anyway... Is that actually Shakespeare's debt to North is much greater and that he actually used Thomas North's writings and aspects of Thomas North's life for every single one of his plays except for two and that he wasn't just using the prose works that Thomas North wrote his his, uh, three uh, translations but that Thomas North actually wrote early versions of these plays and that Shakespeare took these early plays by Thomas North and adapted them into the plays that we know today. So it differs from an authorship theory like uh, the uh, Oxfordians uh, who believe that the Earl of Oxford sort of secretly wrote the plays and Shakespeare just took his name on them, uh, put his name on them. Dennis believes that Shakespeare wrote the plays, but that he was adapting these earlier works by Thomas North and actually using that for a lot of the uh language a lot of the uh story and even some of the uh most famous soliloquies in the canon
0: yeah you know and i i obviously i'm not a i'm not a neutral uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> arbiter here I, right. I i have i have a dog in this fight um sure. and in reading the book you know i I it, I it was illuminating to me because i i know that there's a lot of um there's a lot of crossover between uh devere and and north mm-hmm. as well and mm-hmm. and you know oxfordians by and large, aren't um, you know, they don't have the viewpoint that uh, De Vere wrote every word out of his mm-hmm. own brain. Um, mm-hmm. that, that there's a sense that there is a sort of a collaborative Shakespeare, that Shakespeare is the result of um, right. a lot of different authors and a lot of different con- contributors over time. Um, Oxfordians tend to think that the, what we, what we have now is, is by and large the, the result of the redactions and also sort of rewrites and input of, of, of Devere. Um, and so, you know, I'm reading it from, from that perspective and it's very illuminating. And I think that, you know, there, there's a lot, um, there's a lot to, uh, to be said for, for what McCarthy, um, comes up with here. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I just want to talk about, then, like how he initially came to this mm-hmm. place because it's this is not and this is not a story of a um, academic sitting in an ivory tower, <laughs> no. uh poring over the works of these these two writers and saying, Aha and and, you know, and sort of cross-examining. Right. Um, right. what is it the story of? And this is the this is the fun part of the story. Um, how did he come to this conclusion?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, first, first, I should say that I've been talking to a lot of Oxfordians since writing this book and uh, had real spirited discussions and really friendly discussions. Uh, I think that there is a lot that uh, Dennis has learned from Oxfordian scholarship that I've learned from Oxfordian scholarship. And there is, you know, a way that these theories can sort of coexist in a way Yeah, that, you know, if you just replace Shakespeare with Oxford and, right. and sort of see <laughs> him as adapting some of these works, but uh, Dennis wouldn't believe that. Dennis believes that Shakespeare was Shakespeare and, and all of that, but I'm, I'm more open-minded myself and, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm here as a journalist <laughs> and, and as an observer, but, but I should say that, you know, I, I, I find uh, uh, right now anyway, I find Dennis's theories incredibly compelling and, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They, they seem to make a lot of sense to me. So, Uh, I'll I'll just say that as a a preface but uh, what also was really compelling to me is Dennis McCarthy as a person and as a researcher because he is just a fascinating character he was not a classically trained scholar in fact he was a college dropout who spent uh, a lot of his 20s sort of drifting and and uh, was on a championship ultimate frisbee team for for a number of years and (laughs) tried to be a horror novelist he had sort of many different lives but um in his uh, 30s, he ended up doing the scholarship into science and uh, looking at sort of the history of evolution and, and wrote a book that was actually very well received about that topic for Oxford uh, University Press. And then that sort of led him to looking at how ideas move around the world and how ideas evolve. And he, as an example, he took uh, uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet as sort of this iconic play who, you know, that started as this sort of 11th century Norse legend. And he wanted to see if he could trace the story of Hamlet and how Shakespeare developed this story and all the kind of permutations it went through along the way. And along the way, sort of discovered this reference to this earlier version of Hamlet, which scholars called it Mm Ur-Hamlet. And it's this play that, uh, you know, we know existed because uh, writers refer to it, but we don't have a copy of it. And Dennis wanted to see if he could figure out who wrote the Ur-Hamlet. And he took a deep dive into the archives and started looking at all these writings of these other writers and teasing apart these very obscure references and this, you know, Elizabethan game of of sort of telephone between these, uh, you know, different writers. And he started finding all these allusions to the works and the life of Thomas North and concluded that Thomas North wrote this early version of Hamlet and from there he started finding uh references to other plays and then he started finding you know resonances with other uh aspects of Thomas North's life and work in in these other plays and and sort of developing this theory that Thomas North you know wrote uh these plays that became a large part of the canon
0: and so he used a, a computer program right yes. um, can you explain how that worked
1: yeah so uh about So he's been looking into this for about 15 years now. And ab- about five years into the research, he discovered this technique that other Shakespeare scholars had used to uh, essentially use plagiarism software, which is the same kind of over-the-counter software that professors use to tell <laughs> if a student has cheated on a term paper. And what he did was he took all of Shakespeare's plays and all of Thomas Norse's uh, translations, and he ran them through this software and uh, started just finding hit after hit after hit of common phrases that are in both Shakespeare and North. And then he would sort of take these phrases and run them through these other databases to see if anyone else had used these phrases, and many of them were, were really unique, and you know it's you know you don't know what you don't know, so it's possible that there are lost works or manuscripts that could also have used these phrases. But what's particularly notable is that these phrases all seem to sort of gather in passages in which there's a very similar idea being expressed in the Shakespeare play and the northern uh, passage in, in Norse translations. And so it either uh, means that Shakespeare, if you buy this theory, it either means that Shakespeare was really obsessed with Thomas North and was not only using him for his Roman plays, but was sort of using his books for all of the plays, or uh, that Dennis is right, and, and Thomas North actually wrote these early versions that Shakespeare adapted.
0: What What are some of the um, examples that you think are most compelling? Um, yeah, that, that he's that he's uncovered that link North uh, to Shakespeare in a much more dramatic sort of way.
1: Yeah, so it's in some ways it's the um, it's sort of the aggregation of these passages. You know, Dennis has a website, SirThomasNorth.com, that you can look at, and he literally has uh, hundreds of examples of these of these passages that incorporate thousands of phrases into them. But there's some that really stand out. For example, in uh, The Taming of the Shrew, there's this description of this uh, uh, sort of Greek uh, bedroom that uh, sort of furnished with fine gold and tapestries. And then uh, sort of uh, inexplicably sort of talks about um, uh, farming right afterwards and talks about uh, uh, having these oxen in the stable and a hundred milch kind to the pail. And that phrase "milk kind of the pale," um, which means uh, milk cows ready to ready to milk, uh, is one that is um, is used nowhere else in in the English language. And Dennis has found, um, except for a passage in in Norse Plutarch's Lives, in which he also talks about this fine bedroom with gold and tapestries and then also sort of segues to talking about uh, oxen and uh, uses the same phrase, milch kind to the pale. And um, there's another reference in Thomas North's uh, unpublished journal where he uses the same phrase, again, in the same uh, same kind of context. So, you know, at the very least, it shows that Shakespeare was using this, uh, was using Thomas North for other plays and not just the Roman plays. But, um, you know, there's there's sort of, uh, dozens of, of other passages that, um, that I could point out that, that also um, sort of follow the same logic. I'll just, talk, I'll just talk about one more, which is in Richard II, there's this scene where the queen is uh, sort of in grief and she's really uh, sort of uh, uh, despairing. And her counselor talks about how grief is really something that is a distorted view of the world, and it's like viewing the whole world through, through a glass of water, uses this really interesting metaphor, and then uses this phrase uh, to dissolve the bands of this life. And uh, again, that's a phrase that is almost nowhere else in, in English. There's only maybe two or three other people who have ever used that particular phrase, dissolve the bands of this life. Except, again, in Thomas North and his translation of this work called Nepo's Lives, he also has a passage in which he's talking about grief, and he also talks about it as if seeing things through water, and then also uses this phrase to solve the bands of life. And what's particularly notable is that this translation by Thomas North was actually published five years before, uh, I'm sorry, five years after um, Richard II was published in uh, in Quarto, and so there's no way that Shakespeare could have actually just used the, the published work and uh, wrote this scene. He would have had to have access to Thomas North's private papers, or again, Thomas North you know, could have used this himself to write this early version of the play. So it's that kind of thing that just becomes, the more you see it and the more passages that, that he points out, the more compelling it becomes.
0: So in reading the book, I, I got to wondering which story you actually found more interesting the story of um what dennis mccarthy is doing and what he's uncovered or the story of dennis mccarthy himself Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you 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 tell both so interestingly and (laughs) you know you you kind of paint a portrait of both things and 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 weigh that uh, or balance that out um really nicely but what intrigues you more is it is it this this guy who's sort of this you know Sole crusader to this one idea that has really nobody else um, yet on board, um, or the idea itself that that sort of as a as a journalist and a writer intrigues you uh, the most.
1: Yeah, I I sort of went back and forth between them actually. Um, yeah, you know, I I find these uh, underdog stories really compelling, and and just seeing Dennis sort of trying to get his ideas out there and. Sort of following him on this uh, kind of detective story that he was involved in and how he put the pieces together and then how he just tried so hard to get anyone to listen to him and still trying to get uh, people to listen to him. Um, you know, I find that I find that really fascinating and, and really, really fun to kind of follow as a journalist as a, um, as a narrative. But then I became equally compelled by the story of Sir Thomas North, who's also sort of an underdog and was sort of always at the wrong place at the wrong time at court <laughs> and never kind of right. got the right. acclaim that, that, he, uh, that he deserved maybe. And um, it's sort of equally important to understand Thomas North's life because, you know, this is what really takes it from just a case of Shakespeare or whoever wrote the plays using Thomas North's work and this much more controversial contention that Thomas North wrote these plays, which is that Dennis is able to take each one of these plays and sort of fit it into a period or or an event in Thomas North's life and sort of examine the play differently through, uh, through that lens and find these real, uh, real sort of uncanny coincidences between the themes of the plays or specific details of the plays that relate to aspects of thomas north's life and so that became as much of the kind of narrative that i was telling in the story was sort of following you know this really momentous period of of elizabethan history through the eyes of this writer thomas north and then sort of trying to ask the question as is are, you know, are these, uh, ideas and are these events in Thomas Orr's life also reflected in Shakespeare's plays. And so it was really a combination of both, I think. And, you know, it depends on the chapter, uh, which one I found <laughs> more interesting at the time. I don't know, which one did you find more interesting? That's it. I,
0: yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I, the reason I asked it is because I'm not really, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 again, I think it's so, it's well balanced, um, Oh, that he you kind of wrote a book about two different things at the same time. Um, and, and I find both of them really remarkable stories. Yeah. Um, I have some thoughts about, about McCarthy that I'll get to uh, <laughs> in, in a little bit, but I want to, I want to focus again on, on, on North for a second yeah. then, because um, yeah, what are some of those stories of his life? Um, he, there are some very dramatic, especially in his early years, uh, some yes. very dramatic things that, that McCarthy thinks, are um, some of the foundational inspirations for um, some of the, some of the plays. Uh, so, so what are some of those uh, biographical points that are relevant here?
1: Yeah, well, I open up the book with a murder because that's you know, there's nothing like grabbing someone's attention with the, <laughs> with the murder right in the beginning. And uh, this was a um, particularly gruesome murder that took place in 1551 in which this woman Alice Arden, uh, murdered her husband and she did it with um, the collusion of, of her lover, uh, this guy Thomas Mosby, and they sort of colluded along with half the town, frankly, of this town called Faversham to uh, murder this, uh, uh, her husband, uh, Thomas Arden. And um, this murder actually sort of um, forms the plot of this play called Arden of Faversham, which some people believe to be one of Shakespeare's first plays, And moreover, this play is uh, really reminiscent of Macbeth and seems to have inspired uh, the murder that took place in Macbeth between uh, Macbeth and and Lady Macbeth. And uh, so why do I bring this up? It's that uh, Thomas North was actually the brother of Alice Arden and he would have known all of the characters involved in this plot. And uh, so McCarthy's belief is that this was Thomas North's first play, that he actually took his family's story and uh, turned it into a play that he wrote very early on in the 1550s, and it was only much later that it was then adapted into this play, Arden of Faversham, which which we still have today. And um, so that's that's one example. And then uh, another example from very early on is that um, a few years later, Thomas North was on this uh, delegation. He took part in this delegation to Rome, in which. He was sent by Queen Mary, who was uh, a Catholic queen, and was trying to reconcile England with the Pope after uh, her father, Henry VIII, sort of very dramatically broke with the Pope. And uh, Thomas North was was along this journey and uh, kept a journal in which he wrote down uh, many of the the thoughts that he had, many of the the locations that he visited. And uh, Dennis believes that this uh, journal and these experiences of this trip uh, number one, influenced play Henry VIII, which sort of uh, encapsulates the same story that uh, Thomas North was, was a part of, of Henry VIII's break from, from Rome. But more dramatically was uh, the basis for the play The Winter's Tale, which um, has all of these elements from uh, the trip that Thomas North took through Italy that seemed to be reflected in the plot of this sort of very fantastical play that Shakespeare wrote uh, supposedly towards the end of his career. Um, And I'll just mention a couple of them. So Thomas North visited this church in Italy in which there were these very uh, dramatic and beautiful wax statues that were sort of uh, of very true to life. And uh, that same day, he went to a palace in Italy that had these uh, amazing frescoes by this Italian artist by the name of Giulio Romano. And uh, as some people may know, at the end of The Winter's Tale there is this statue that comes to life and that statue was supposedly in the play made by this Italian artist Giulio Romano. And there has been so much speculation about how uh, Shakespeare could have known about this artist and why he would call him a sculptor and why he would say that he he made this, this statue. And in fact, this is one of the uh, areas that Oxfordians also speculate about and say maybe the Earl of Oxford also visited this church and, and this palace, but you know, mm-hmm. there's no record of, of Oxford visiting these places. But it's been proposed that maybe this, this palace and this church was the inspiration for this scene. And yet we know that Thomas North actually went to these places and uh, was able to witness this firsthand and uh, actually wrote about it in this journal. But very significantly, he did not mention the name uh, Julia Romano in the journal, so it would have to be something that he would have been recalling later and uh, sort of remembering that he saw these uh, these beautiful frescoes and saw these beautiful statues the same day, and sort of put them together in this scene. And it's those kind of really uncanny coincidences that once you start seeing a lot of them, they really start adding up. And and Dennis is able to find these in, in literally every single one of uh, the plays, except for for two of them for this you know, 50-year history of Thomas Norris' life.
0: Um, okay, so what I don't get about um, about Dennis is, and, and what I, I have sort of an idea of, about this. I want to know what you think. Um, I don't get why he hangs on to the Stratford man. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm going to go on a little right. bit of a tangent here because sure. one of the things that um, Oxfordians, uh, one of the, the, the geneses of Oxfordianism is, um, is not just that there's nothing biographically about Stratford that connects mm-hmm. the plays, um, that he's this kind of empty vessel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's also that when you look at the very little that we do know about Stratford, sure. um, and, and, you know, his inability to write his own name and his apparent mm-hmm. uh, disregard for books, <laughs> uh, and the fact that he didn't teach his children how to read, you know... That None of that stuff lines up with um, a, a great playwright and a lover yeah. of, of, of language. In addition to that, what we do know about him in terms of his um, education, you know, how far he'd have to walk to school every day, um, the amount of time he'd be spending, you know, Feeling grain, that sort of thing, doesn't leave any time for someone right. to learn how to be a great writer or even write these plays. Mm-hmm. And so, so part of the um, the Oxfordian model is is the question of like, that doesn't make sense to even invoke this person in any meaningful way um, yeah. in the story of the plays, and yet he seems to still do that. Um, yeah. Because I think mostly he's I, 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 there's a little bit of Occam's Razor there. He's he's sort of he's got this idea mm-hmm. of Thomas mm-hmm. North, and then someone else gets passed on to, and and then you have the final product, whatever. Yeah. But I wonder if a lot of it is also because he sees himself in the Stratford man, um, hmm. this guy so who is is not supposed to do what he does by the rules of our uh, tradition, because he's a college dropout, right. Mm-hmm. Um, right (laughs) he's you know he's sort of done a whole bunch of different things he's sort of all over the place right doing this and that other thing and and yet can invest a ton of time and energy into this like deep passion that sort of came out of nowhere (laughs) um am i reading too far into that or, or do you think there's something to be said there
1: yeah that's that's an interesting uh an interesting theory um I, I don't get the sense that Dennis is is all that enamored of Shakespeare, you know, the Shakespeare from Stratford. I think that Dennis is very much enamored with Thomas North, who was not a uh, man of the people. I mean, he was a gentleman. He was university educated. He went through the Inns of Courts. He was, you know, all of that. But at the same time, Thomas North is also sort of an underdog, as I said, and never quite got the acclaim that he uh, should have for for his works, even his prose works. Never mind these plays that Dennis thinks that he wrote. So. Um, it's an interesting theory, um, but I think Dennis's belief in Shakespeare as the the writer of the plays uh, comes more from the, the the historical record and from the uh, the literary uh, record of the times. And you know, there are some references, at least, to Shakespeare as uh, you know a part owner in this company, the Lord Chamberlain's man, and a part owner in the in the Globe Theater. And his names are on uh, a number of the plays and and uh, of course the poems and so you know there there are references to Shakespeare as as a writer at the time even though I, I get what you're saying about um, you know the the lack of of uh, real solid evidence of Shakespeare being a writer as well but I think more than that what what Dennis has has sort of discovered is this. Um, these all these illusions in other writings of the time and uh, their works by uh, Thomas Nash uh, Ben Johnson uh, Thomas Lodge all of these other writers that seem to be uh, referring to uh, Shakespeare as this kind of plagiarist or as this kind of uh, stealer of other people's ideas and the most famous one is, uh, as, as we know, is uh, Grotesworth of Wit, which calls Shakespeare or, or Shakespeare, scene, as, it's, as it is in this story, uh, a uh, upstart crow who beautifies himself with the feathers of others. And the, this pamphlet, Groatsworth of Wit, which is this, this parody, talks about this actor, Shakespeare, scene, who is taking the works of this uh, sort of gentleman scholar and uh, passing them off as his own. And it's that it's that work. But then it's uh, dozens of others that Dennis has also uncovered that seem to refer to specifically to Thomas North as this kind of Italianate knight who is, you know, Sir Thomas North, who is this, uh, you know, who would write these uh, Italianate translations. And there's all these references to this sort of uh, erudite Italianate knight who uh, is constantly put into these uh, juxtapositions with this kind of unlearned kind of buffoonish actor who's kind of, you know, taking his plays and, and rewriting them. And so it's that kind of evidence that that Dennis is able to uh, to look at and to draw these conclusions that, yes, this actually did, did happen, that Shakespeare was this kind of upstart actor who uh, took these plays by Thomas North and, and rewrote them and, and put his name on it. And... Uh, did so very legitimately under the rules of sort of, uh, you know, appropriation at the time that it wasn't some sort of conspiracy. It wasn't some sort of front man, but he was just sort of taking and, and reworking these other plays. But some other writers weren't, weren't too happy about it. And were, we're kind of writing about it in these other works. So that's kind of the the best I can say about kind of where, where Dennis has got this idea and why he's so uh, firmly attached to this this concept of Shakespeare being this actual writer who was working on these these plays and and not sort of just this front man or just a name that was kind of put on the work of another writer.
0: Yeah, I, certainly concepts of um, uh, intellectual property uh, that that we have today yeah. uh, did not exist in Elizabethan England, and you know I think that's also one of the reasons why. Um, you know, especially Oxfordians, by and large, see the the canon as um, a not not a collaborative effort, but like mm. the the distillation of the the best of Elizabethan literature, uh, sort of into into one set, right? Um, that then just gets this name shoved on it uh, as 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 Shakespeare, um, probably in part due to to ben johnson's uh chicanery but uh mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's a whole different subject um I, I think the the bigger question is why thomas north as someone who was known to be a writer um and and who who did publish under his own name um why would he not uh just publish all of his plays and yeah. you know poetry and and whatever else
1: yeah, I had that question, too, and, and that was something that I asked Dennis about early on, and it t- took me a while to kind of wrap my head around this. And, and you know, it really has to do with the the way that theater was thought about at the time and the fact that Thomas North uh, was 30 years older than, than Shakespeare and about 15 years older than Oxford and grew up at this time when when drama really wasn't seen as a very reputable art and you know as much as we think of shakespeare's plays today as these great masterpieces that you know the the distillation of of literature at the time uh they were really they were really looked upon as um you know either a very ephemeral art that was sort of performed at court or as this very kind of low uh art that was performed for the masses in these public theaters and uh so thomas north would have sort of grown up with this mentality and um dennis's theory is that he was writing these translations, which he would have seen as kind of his legacy and his important works. And then on the side was writing these plays uh, for the Earl of Leicester, who is this, um, uh, you know, prominent lord, who who is the, a suitor for Queen Elizabeth and the best friend of Thomas North's brother, Roger, who was, who was another lord. And uh, Dennis believes that Thomas North was writing these plays on behalf of Leicester for his theater company, and, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been something that he would have put his name on. It would have been something that he would have been doing as sort of a work for hire um, that to try to to push forward the ideas and, and the politics of, of this lord. And it was only much later after Lester's death and uh, after Thomas North was sort of disowned by his brother and was sort of impoverished and and. Uh, was in London that he would have uh, taken these plays and and uh, sold them to Shakespeare or or somehow uh, Shakespeare acquired them and uh, then you know put them on in the public stage and and at that point was able to kind of put his name on it. So there there is a way in which this makes sense that Thomas North wouldn't have really seen these plays as his legacy. He would have really seen uh, his prose works as his legacy and uh, would have been fine publishing these plays anonymously or having uh, Shakespeare. Uh, Take them and and put them on uh, under under his own theater company.
0: So I wonder if uh, you know you, you mentioned that you also love Shakespeare. Um,
1: yeah.
0: So so since writing the book and in the ensuing you know couple of years um, that, that you've been uh, investigating and uh, this this topic and getting to know Dennis and so forth, um, has your uh, understanding of or appreciation of Shakespeare changed. Like, what's what's how, how's it affected you um, as yeah. a as a as a Shakespeare fan?
1: Yeah, if any, if anything, it's really deepened my appreciation of the plays and really enriched a lot of the plays in in my mind because it sort of gives a reason for why they might have been written and it gives an explanation for uh, some of the the characters and some of the situations in the plays that may have seemed sort of obscure before and uh... you know as i'm sure you you can agree um, there's just a lot about sort of shakespeare's uh... canon that just doesn't make sense you know why would somebody be writing this italianic comedy one year and then the next year he's gonna write this roman play about julius caesar and then the next year he's gonna write you know this great tragedy of king lear and and um, and, and, and in ways that had nothing to do with Shakespeare's own life and own experience. But then you have uh, you know, someone like Thomas North, who had all these incredible experiences in his life, and he fought in wars in, in Ireland, which uh, Dennis believes uh, helped spur some of the, the writing in, in this great war play, Henry V. And he uh, had these conflicts with his brother throughout his life. And, and uh, you see all these brotherly conflicts in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, like As You Like It and The Tempest and, and various other plays. And uh, he was impoverished towards the end of his life. And, and you know, you see this great understanding of, of uh, what it's like to be poor and, and exiled in, in King Lear and, and in Richard II. And just sort of, you know, play by play, you sort of, Get this depth and this this richness you know he traveled in Italy, in Italy and it would explain why he would be kind of working in commedia dell'arte and and a lot of these Italian plots and and so when you start viewing it through that lens you start to um, just see it in a much more I think uh, emotional and and uh, and passionate way and it's not about just these these stories anymore it's about how this this playwright was sort of wrestling with these stories of his own life and and I think that works with other writers too. You know, the Earl of Oxford. I know people have various theories about how his life is reflected in the plays as well. But um, you know, I think that either way it's it's much more uh compelling to me than than thinking just strat you know, this Stratford upon Avon uh playwright Shakespeare was just kind of pulling these books off his shelves and one day was, you know, <laughs> writing writing about Holland Shed and the next day was writing, you know, based on, you know, some sort of obscure Italian not novella or something. So um, so yeah, it's really, it's really deepened and enriched the plays in my mind, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I, even, even the, the, the task of plagiarizing that much, um, would have been monumental, um, for, for someone like, like mm-hmm. Shakespeare to have done. And, you mm-hmm. know, I, I think of, for instance, like, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fairly convinced by, by the, the bulk of, um mccarthy's argument that thomas north had more to do with the foundations for a lot of these plays than we knew before um the idea that he was the author of the ur hamlet i think is a very compelling one Mm -hmm. um and then i look to for instance the to be or not to be soliloquy from from hamlet which to me right sort of is 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 something that you can see being almost a redaction to the original just thrown in there right Mm -hmm. um and And, to me, you know, it it speaks to so much of what we know of the biography of de Vere and his his struggles with mental health and um and contemplation of suicide and so on and so forth. but i I, I agree. i I hear a lot of people say it doesn't really matter who wrote the plays. and mm-hmm. i I'm, i am i I fundamentally think it matters who yeah. wrote the plays. Um, I think that it's probably a lot of people. And I think that, like, it, it means so much more it gives it so much richness and depth Absolutely, um, you know like getting back to to the question i asked you at first if if you, the three books so far that you have written were just written by like whoever uh <laughs> right. with with no backstory right sure. they're not as good it's not yeah. as interesting unless you, yeah. you you know something about the author
1: well, I remember, you know, I took classes in college about the death of the author and, you know, these kind of various literary criticism <laughs> ideas. And I, I never really bought it back then either because, you know, you read, for example, The Great Gatsby. And, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic novel. You know, it's just such an economical uh, uh prose, uh, work that, you know, there's the characters themselves are so compelling, but knowing F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote it and he was, you know, alive in the jazz age and was going to these, you know, parties very similar to, uh, those in the, in the novel to sort of bring it alive in a way and, and cause you to see it differently. And, you know, Hemingway, uh, you know, going, uh, uh, hunting on safari in Africa or going to bullfights in Spain, you know, these things matter and it really matters where these stories come from as much as how they're told. And so I agree with you. I think 100%, it really, um, it really only enlivens and enriches these, these works to know where they come from.
0: So, uh, with all that said, what is your next project?
1: Ah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, it uh, it takes me a while sometimes to really find that project that I want to sit with for for a number of years and, and really dive deep into it. Um, I've got a few that I'm sort of kicking around that you know are possibilities, um, but I'm also uh, looking to do some some magazine articles as well. I have one about uh, a uh, interesting sort of. Uh, aspect of uh, Leonardo da Vinci that I'm sort of following and it's not no, by no means, you know, as uh, complex as this, as this book I just wrote. And, is it that
0: he it. was the keeper of the true Holy Grail? Is that, is that weird?
1: <laughs> no, no, there's no real da Vinci code. There's no, no saying that somebody else is the actual true artist, but uh, it's uh, some, you know, discoveries about, about da Vinci that I'm sort of trying to look into and see if they're, they're true or not. And, and I, I just love sort of, as I, as uh, I said from the outset, just sort of diving into history and, and at the same time, telling more current stories and and you know from from contemporary life and seeing how they match up.
0: Uh, if people want to find more about you and or um, about Dennis McCarthy, uh, where should they start?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They can go to my website, which is michaelblandy.com, and I'm on Twitter and and uh, Facebook and Instagram as well. You can find me; just uh, search for Michael Blanding. And then Dennis has uh, a website that is SirThomasNorth.com and he has put a a lot of his research up there and and particularly a lot of these kind of side-by-side comparisons using the plagiarism software that I think is a really good kind of supplement to my book because I tell the narrative and I tell the story of Thomas North and he has a lot of these uh, sort of uh, literary comparisons up on his website. So I think it's good to, uh, to look at them together.
0: Uh, The book, again, is North by Shakespeare, a rogue scholar's quest for the truth behind the bard's work. It is available wherever books are sold, um, including places that aren't Amazon, so um, go ahead and buy them there. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you.
1: Yeah, thanks for the great conversation.